Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. I'd like to welcome everyone out tonight to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's date stamp this recording. Today is Wednesday, December 9th, 2015. That is, if you're on my side of the world in South Korea. Otherwise, this is Tuesday, December 8th, or probably around 7 p.m. for most of you. In fact, the class starts at 7 p.m., Central Standard Time, and you're certainly welcome to join us every Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time for a live Galatians study taught via uh, the internet. It's a web study, so you're certainly welcome to join us. Let's open in prayer, and then I'll um, read some liturgy from the Hebrew selection and from the Greek selection, and then we'll get started with the study tonight. Let's pray. Avinu Maukenu, our Father, our King. Lord, we are so thankful that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Father, as we enter into the season of festivities um, during this month of December with the two primary uh, festivals in front of us, I'm speaking namely of Hanukkah and Christmas. Father, in whatever we do, in whatever choice we decide to make, whether we choose to celebrate and recognize Hanukkah or Christmas. Father, may we make it our goal to put your son, Yeshua, at the forefront of whatever we're doing. Let him be the preeminence, Father, for it is indeed by him and through him and for him that we find our very being. And so, Father, we thank you for, I'm just going to say Hanukkah. We thank you for the season and the festival of lights. And we thank you for how it reminds us that Yeshua is the light of the world, that you have sent into the world, that you have sent into our hearts. And we bless you, Father, for all these good things. Lord, I pray that you'll uh, be with each and every student that has joined us tonight. And for those who will be listening to this um, recording after the fact, I pray that you'll bless each and every person tonight. I pray that you'll lift them up, encourage them, strengthen them. Um, The holidays can be... Uh, stressful times. Uh, They can be lonely times. Um, They can be challenging times. Lord, be with us as we continue to press in closer to you. Help us to not forget the many, many blessings that you have bestowed upon us. Help us to continue to press into your word so that we can remind ourselves of all the blessings that you have in store for us and so that we can praise you for being our Father. Thank you for sending your Spirit, for he reminds us of the words of Yeshua the Master. Thank you for this Galatians study. I pray that you'll continue to um, challenge the students to press in deeper. I pray that you'll continue to um, challenge the teacher as well. Uh, Give him insights, continue to open his mind to understand more and more truth. Um, And help me to articulate it to the students. Help me to be able to teach in a way that is understandable, that's clear, That's memorable. Lord, I pray that these uh, studies will uh, go a long way towards building us up as an individual, as communities, as families. Um, Lord, I just bless you for this time. I I sincerely appreciate each and every person who's uh, come out out to study with me tonight. So Lord, with all these things, I will bless you and uh, give you the praise in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay. Um, Let's... 
open with some liturgy. Since we're in the topic of circumcision, um, in fact, uh, we're going to be continuing with circumcision probably for this week and next week as we're on section one, Brit Milah, and we'll move into section two, um, why the, uh, let's see, ouch factor, why the male reproductive organ, that will be next week. And then we'll take a break for two weeks, and then we will start again with week 11 come uh, beginning of next year. And so you'll want to watch your emails. If you're subscribed to the Galatians Commentary Studies, you're going to want to watch your emails so I can send you the schedule and so you can keep up. Otherwise, if you are not a member of the Galatians study, you're certainly welcome to join us. Subscription is free. Membership is free. Um, go to my website at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. Look along the very top and click on the link that says Galatians study. And then scroll down a bit into the page and you'll see a link that mentions the live study and click on that, and then it'll offer you a, uh, an opportunity to um, sign up and uh, enroll for the course. It's really uh, just an ongoing course. It's going to keep going until we finish. That is, we'll go on a 10-week, 2-week, 10-week, 2-week schedule, meaning we'll, be, we'll meet for 10 weeks, and we'll take a break for 2 weeks, then we'll meet for 10 weeks, then we'll take a break for 2 weeks, and et cetera, et cetera, and just keep going like that until we finish. So, um Again, uh, you're certainly welcome to come out and study along with us. And if not, if the time frame doesn't fit, if your schedule doesn't permit, then please follow me online. Uh, go to my same website, takesatora.com, and click on that same link for Galatians Commentary. And look on the page for the information that mentions the um, audio recordings, because I record every class each night. It's about an hour long. I record each class, and then I upload the audio within a 24-hour period so that those who are not able to make the live class can join us uh, via the, the uh, podcast or the audio recordings uh, made after the fact. One last um, plug for the class, and then I'll get started with the liturgy. Um, as a bonus uh, feature to those who do join a live class, I stick around for 15 minutes or so after the class teaching is completed for a live Q&A chat with me, the teacher, or with the other students. In other words, there's a little chat feature built into the webinar software that I'm using at WizIQ. And uh, students are encouraged to join us live, and that way they can stick around for the 15-minute Q&A session and dialogue about the session or just other general tour questions that you might have or corrections or comments or things like that. It's a great way to build a community, but it's also a great way to... Um, uh, pick the brain of the teacher and see if there's something that I can answer for you. So um, you're certainly welcome to come out. That's free. I don't record those 15-minute sessions, the audio that I make. So what happens is you type your question or your comment in the chat room, and I will respond by talking. Because you can hear me even though I can't hear you. I can see your typing. And so um, I don't record those. So it's a, it's a bonus um, for those who are in the live classroom only, an exclusive, you could say. So come on out. All right, let's jump into some liturgy. I'm going to read the same liturgy that I did last week because we're still in this theme of circumcision. We're still talking about Paul's um, use of the topic of circumcision, particularly how it had uh, impacted the Jewish people of his day. And so with that, let me jump into the Genesis 17 passage. This is Genesis 17 and I'm going to read verses 9 through, what did I say, 9 through uh, 14. And I'll read from the, um, I think I'll read from the NIV. I'm sorry, let's change versions. Bear with me here. I think I want to read from the ESV, English Standard Version. And then I'll jump over into the Hebrew and read that for you as well. Okay, so this is Genesis 17 starting in verse uh, 9, and I'll just read down through the verse 14. Quote, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male who... I'm sorry, uh, let me read that verse again. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, let's go back and read the Hebrew of that particular passage, starting in verse 9. The Hebrew reads, Vayomer Elohim el Abraham, va'ata et briti tishmorata, buzarracha achrecha lodoratam, zot briti asher tishmoru, beni uvenechem, uven zarecha achrecha, himor lachem kol zachar. Verse 11. Un maltem et basar orlatkem, vahaya laot brit beni uvenechem, uven shmonat yamim yimol lachem kol zachar ladoratechem, yalid bayit umichnat kesef mikol ben nehor asher lo mizarachahu. And verse 13, himol yimor yalid betakal. Miknat Kaspacha Bahaita Briti Biv Sarachem Livrit Olam. And verse 14 Boorel Zahar Asher Loyimor et Basar Olatho. The Nichrata Hanefesh Hahi Mea Meha et Briti Hefar. Okay, let's read some Greek. First, I want to read Galatians 5. 1 through 6, and I'll read it from the ESV again first. This reads, quote, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's jump over to the Greek. Those same six verses in Greek read, Te Eleutheria. Hemas Christos Eleutherosen, Stekete Unkai Me Palen Zugo Duleas in a Keste. Ide Egu Palas, Legu Humelhati Ian Pertemnesta, Christos Humas Uden, Ophelese, Marturumai de Palen Panti Anthropo, Pertemnomeno, Hati Opheletes, Estin Hollanto Namon Poesai, Katergita, Apoc. Christu hoitines in namo decauste de scaratas exepesate. Hemais garpunumati ec pistios elpida decausunes apectecometa. In gar Christo Jesu ute pertome di esque ute acrobustia. Alla pistis di agapes in ergumene. Okay, and that'll be our liturgy for tonight. Let's um, recall where we are at. Uh, if you're looking, if you're in the live class tonight and you're looking at the screen, you'll see it's parked on uh, uh, section one dot one uh, one point brit milah. And as we already talked about last week, brit milah is a Hebrew phrase that refers to covenant of circumcision. By the way, if you're in the live class, I've just learned that you can scroll up and down on your own. You don't have to wait for me to scroll. If you, uh, let me draw a little arrow and point. You look at the um, gray uh, bar over on the far right of the screen, um, at least on the right, to the right of the wording of the commentary. You can see there, if you grab that with your mouse and then click on it and then pull down or such, then 
you can scroll up and down on your own. Now, I'm scrolling on the screen right now, but if I move somewhere that you don't want me to be, then feel free to scroll on your own. But for the, for the purpose of teaching, I'm going to park the screen where I think I need it to be. Word of caution, if you scroll down and then I scroll up, I think mine will cancel yours since I'm the presenter and you're the student. <laughs> so um, if you scroll down and then I scroll up, well, then my, my screen will override yours and it'll scroll back to where I think I need us to be. Okay, just thought I'd let you know. So uh, what we did is we talked about, we introduced this topic of Brit Milan because in our endeavor to better understand Paul's Judaisms and thus understand the book of Galatians a little better, the letter to Galatians, what we need to do is kind of travel back in time and put our mind into the social setting of first century Jerusalem, first century Israel, first century Jewish worldview, particularly the first century pattern of religious lifestyle in the first century. And so the reason we can't simply borrow today's Jewish views of circumcision is because unfortunately, today's Judaisms have strayed, in my opinion, quite far from what God intended circumcision to be, and therefore today's views of circumcision don't really line up very neatly with what the Torah teaches, and unfortunately they don't line up with what first century Jewish worldview was in that day. And here's what I mean, and here's how it's going to impact our studies as we look through the book of Galatians. We already know that circumcision itself is a surgical act, meaning it's essentially removal of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. So when God asked Abraham to circumcise the males of his household, then we know that that means the physical act of removing the foreskin. But what we don't often remind ourselves as we're studying the book of Galatians is that the word circumcision and the word circumcise, those terms, had become essentially social markers in Paul's day. Meaning, you can read through the book of Acts, or you can read through Paul's letters, and you'll often encounter the word circumcision or circumcised. And sometimes Paul doesn't mean the physical act so much as he means the identity of the Jewish people as a whole. So he can say, for instance, earlier in the book of Galatians, that Peter was the apostle to the circumcised, and that Paul was the apostle to the uncircumcised. And what do we mean by these terms? Well, most of us already know from our Sunday school lessons or from um, attending church or Messianic communities, we know that these phrases refer to the, un, the um, Peter being the apostle to the circumcised means that he had a ministry, as it were, to the Jewish people. They were thus circumcised. And that Paul, being the apostle to the uncircumcised, had a ministry and a responsibility for the Gentiles who were joining Israel in the first century. Those who were coming to God through the Messiah Yeshua, those who were joining the church, if you will. So, again, we know that those terms are being used in a social fashion, but there's one more hint that often escapes Christian exegesis of the book of Galatians these days. And I believe it is, it is a key to unlocking or better understanding Paul's um, letters here. And that is that in Paul's day, and we can gain this, glean this understanding from better closely studying the uh, rabbinic writings, better closely studying the um, extra Jewish writings that survived the destruction of the first century, uh, Josephus, Philo, um, some of the Dead Sea Scroll writings, things like that. If we study those more closely and corroborate the information that we find there with the rest of the um, ancient manuscripts that are available to us today, primarily the Torah, primarily uh, the, new, the apostolic writings, the New Testament writings, and also include the non, um, non-inspired writings that I'm referring to now, the rabbinic writings along with the patristic writings, which would be the older church uh, writings, um, the letters from that were penned by the church fathers, things like that. In other words, just approach it scientifically, put all the pieces on the table, and all the pieces would include the rabbinic writings. Um, put all these pieces on the table and let the, let the writings kind of give you a view of Paul's worldview, Paul, Paul's um, first century Judaisms. And here's the view that we kind of take away from that if we put all of these pieces together and kind of um, balance them out. Um, what we end up with is a view of the first century Jewish um, religious life 
as seen through, as best as we can, through the lens of Paul and through the lens of your average Jewish person. And here's what ends up happening. Circumcision, the topic of circumcision, becomes a point of demarcation between Jewish people and Gentile people, or Jews and non-Jews. Circumcision ends up becoming a social badge, a, um, a, a work of the law is what we've ter- learned about this term. It becomes a, um, what was the phrase I was studying this week? It becomes a, um, a status symbol. And it was being used this way in the first century to separate the Jewish people from non-Jewish peoples. In other words, circumcision became a sign of Jewish identity. And if you go back and read the text very carefully in Genesis, you're going to find that circumcision doesn't identify Jewish people. Now, I paused for a moment for effect. You say, Ariel. Well, of course it identifies Jewish people. Why else would they call the circumcised? Why else would they call the Jewish people the circumcised and the Gentiles the uncircumcised? Ah, that's what we're going to chat that's what we're going to find out a little more as we keep studying in the text, particularly when we get to next week. Circumcision was given to Israel, true. However, not every person in Israel is a Jew. In other words, let me say it this way. All Jews are Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews. Are you beginning to get my point? In other words, if we read through the rest of Torah, we're going to find that there are non-Jewish people who join themselves to Israel quite often. And we find that the same laws that were given to Jewish Israel applied to non-Jewish Israelites. In other words, the Gentiles who join themselves to Israel's God and to Israel's Torah take on the Torah of Israel because that is their covenant responsibility as they join Israel. Are you following me? So to join Israel is to join yourself to Israel's God and to obligate yourself to Israel's laws. This would include circumcision. This means, if we follow through with this logic, that a non-Jewish person who joins himself to Israel and receives circumcision simply becomes a circumcised Gentile, not a Jew. In other words, I'm going to challenge the historical viewpoint that circumcision turns a person into a Jew. That's essentially the prevailing Jewish view of Paul's day, that circumcision turned you into a Jew. And you know what's sad? It's actually the prevailing Christian view of today. At least it is from the studies that I have um, undertaken, at least it is from the viewpoint that I've gleaned as I dialogue with well-meaning Christian friends and family, those pastors who study the New Testament writings along with me, and when I question them as to why perhaps they don't preach circumcision from their pulpits, quite often the response I get is, well, circumcision is for Jewish people. And I think to myself, how so? How is circumcision for Jewish people... Excuse me, how is circumcision for Jewish people only? Are you trying to say that circumcision makes you a Jew? Now, it's a trick question, because if the pastor says, yes, it does, then I have to say, uh-uh-uh, that's not what the Torah teaches. The Torah didn't say, and you have to read it carefully there, if you look in Genesis, when we read the Genesis 17 narrative, God didn't say to Abraham, I want you to become circumcised because I want you to take on Jewish identity. And when we... Uh, fast forward to the book of Acts and the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, etc., etc., we don't find um, instructions given from the apostles, hey, we need to circumcise all the Gentiles so that we can turn them into Jews. So I'm going to keep challenging this idea that circumcision turns you into a Jew because I quite honestly do not follow that line of thought. I don't believe that circumcision turns you into a Jew. I do believe that circumcision is for Jews, and I do believe that if you're Jewish, you're, you should be circumcised, if you're male, that is. However, the, here's my challenge. If you are a follower of Hashem, if you have joined yourself to Israel's God, if you have joined yourself to Israel's Torah, then sooner or later, circumcision becomes a commandment that you probably want to ask the Holy Spirit about if you're male. That's the point I'm trying to make. You're not hearing me say... You must become circumcised or else. That's not what I'm saying. Um, there is no or else because 
quite honestly, if you don't, um, if you don't undergo circumcision as a Christian male, then God's not going to kick you out of the group. He's not going to cut you off from his inheritance. He's not going to take away your salvation, etc., etc. You, you get my point. In other words, circumcision, like any commandment, is something that you and the Holy Spirit need to work out between the two of you. It is a commandment, and it is something that stands because it's part of the Torah. It's part of the instructions that have been handed down to us. And it is our covenant responsibility as males. However, I'm not, I can't make you do it. Only the Holy Spirit can talk to you about that. So it's within this context that we gain an appreciation for circumcision as we remember that the Judaisms of Paul's day were misusing this commandment. They were elevating it to the top of the list. That's what we learned about this phrase, works of the law. Works of the law is kind of a technical term in Paul's writings, and it refers to a, a kind of a policy. It refers to a short list. It refers to a... Um, a bylaw, a set of bylaws, a package, as it were, membership package that gets imposed on members. It it initiates those who want to join the group, meaning if you're a Gentile in Paul's day and you wanted to join the people group known as Israel, then the works of the law became your your initiation package, your initiation um, membership steps to join the group. Uh, the works of the law included things such as Sabbath-keeping, uh, dietary restrictions, and circumcision. At least those three. We know there might have been a few more, but for the sake of understanding, I'm just going to highlight those three. Those three kind of became elevated as badges, as social markers, as boundary-defining um, commandments, uh, as a social status. And basically, as a Gentile, it, once you went through the rubric of circumcision, in other words, once you converted to Judaism and became a Jew, a legal standing Jew, you left behind your Gentile identity. Essentially, you changed your identity from Gentile to Jewish through this man-made ceremony called, called um, the proselyte conversion ceremony, which was invented by the rabbis, by the way. There's, there's no scriptural basis for the proselyte ceremony, even though on the surface it's harmless, but to misuse it and to force Gentiles to undergo proselyte circumcision for the supposed um, group membership into Israel that it's going to afford you, that's wrong. So essentially the point I'm trying to make as we push into our study into Galatians is we're going to have to remind ourselves that in Paul's day, the unbelieving Jews, the um, uh, unbelieving section of Israel, were essentially towing this standard party line as a way of getting Gentiles to come into Jude Judaism and join Israel, the line of demarcation was drawn in the sand between who is a Jew and who's not a Jew. And therefore, in the first century worldview, the first century way of looking at Israel's membership, everyone in Israel was a Jew. You could say it this way. All Jewish Israel and only Jewish Israel shared a place in the world to come, or viz were righteous, viz were saved. So that is the better way to approach the book of Galatians from its proper uh, sociological and historical perspective. And I have to keep emphasizing this point um, at the risk of sounding redundant, because the standard Christian view of the, of the Judaisms of Paul's day doesn't articulate circumcision, group membership, proselytism, they don't, they don't articulate it the way I'm articulating them. How do they articulate it? How do they explain it, you might ask? I have often labeled the Christian view the, as a Lutheran Paul, uh, the way they view Paul, the way they understand and interact with Paul, uh, named after Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, because his commentaries on Romans and Galatians are extremely popular, and his viewpoints on the book of Galatians are the prevailing view among Christians, at least uh, the books that I read, the Christians that I meet, the pastors that I dialogue with. And Reformation Paul, or Lutheran Paul, or the traditional Paul, or the prevailing Christian view, or the uh, um, 
popular view. All of these are kind of the same thing, all right? So I'll, I'll use those phrases interchangeably. Uh, uh, Lutheran Paul, Reformation Paul, prevailing Christian view, traditional view, popular view, etc. Those all refer to the same thing. And what are they? Essentially, they are a means of interpreting the book of Galatians, a hermeneutic, if you will, a means of interpreting the book of Galatians with this particular view. And I'm going to describe it so that we can so that we can contrast it with what I feel is a better view. All right? So here is the traditional view on Paul, the traditional Christian prevailing perspective on Paul, and it's quite simply this. Most Christians believe, as they study the book of Galatians, that the Jewish people in Paul's day believed that if they kept the Torah perfectly, that God would save them. Therefore, works of the law in Paul becomes a description of works of obedience to the law. And because Paul quite explicitly teaches us, and we're going to get to it when we get down to Galatians chapter 2, Paul explicitly teaches us that it's not by the works of the law that we're saved, that we become righteous. No one is made righteous by the works of the law. Paul explicitly says this. And because Christian interpretations of works of law means works done in obedience to the law, then what we have is in the Christian worldview, in the Christian mindset, Paul is saying that no one can be saved by keeping the law. Now, that's step one of two steps in the Christian way of interpreting Paul. The second step in Christian um, interpretations of Paul is the phrase, under the law. And we don't find that as prevalent in, in um Galatians, but we do find it in Romans quite a lot. So, under the law in the Christian mindset means essentially the same thing as works of law. Under the law means under obedience to the law or under obligation to the law, if I could stretch out the phrase. They believe that under the law is kind of shorthand for under Torah, under obligation to the law. In other words, keeping Torah. And because Paul says explicitly in Romans chapter 6, verses uh I think it's 15 and 16. It might be 14 and 15, but so it's Romans chapter 6. Let's I know it's 15, so let's 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 pick on that verse. Paul says explicitly in Romans 6:15 um, that we're not under law, we're under grace. Right? I think it's 14. I'll go back and look it up in a moment. I'm just pulling this from memory, so bear with me. Paul says explicitly in Romans that we're not under law, we're under grace. Well, if my understanding of under law means under obligation to the law, then essentially Paul's telling me that I'm no longer under obligation to keep the law. I'm under grace. And indeed, that is the Christian position. See how that works? They've launched from works of the law that save me, or supposedly save me, towards under the law, which I would supposedly keep after I become saved. So for your average Christian who reads through the book of Galatians, and with these two phrases that they encounter in Paul, works of the law at step A and under the law at step B, your average Christian comes to this conclusion. Since A, no one can be saved by keeping the law, and B, once we become saved, we're no longer under the law. Conclusion? We don't need Torah anymore. We don't need Sabbath. We don't need the dietary laws. We don't need the festivals. We don't need circumcision, for, for goodness sake. In a word, we're under grace, and it's okay to just do things as the Holy Spirit leads us. Now, it sounds like I'm being a little bit disrespectful, towards the Christian position. I'm not. I'm actually trying to be a bit emphatic so that we can better challenge ourselves towards this um, step A, step B, and the conclusion that I have presented for you here tonight. And the reason I feel that we need to be challenged in this view is because if our conclusion after studying step A, which is works of law, step B, under law, and we come to a conclusion that we don't need to keep the law anymore, then what happens as Christians when we encounter the other Christian Jews in the New Testament, such as Paul, keeping the Torah? What happens when we find the Jews in the book of Acts, say, chapter 21, who are all believers in Yeshua and are all zealous for the Torah? What happens when we find James instructing Peter, uh, Paul in that same passage, Acts chapter 21, to undergo the vow that he and those four men had undertaken to complete their vow, continue on towards the temple, offer up the sacrifices, shave their heads, 
present their offerings before the priests and prove that there is nothing to the rumor that says that they no longer keep the law. What do we make of those verses? Also, throughout the writings of Paul, we find him hinting at his love and obedience to Torah. For instance, in Romans chapter 7, we find Paul confessing that the law is holy and just and good. And we find him later confessing that same chapter, chapter 7 of Romans, that with his mind, he obeys the law of God. With his, he, he adheres to the law of God. Also in Romans chapter um, 3, around verses um, 29, 30, 31, the last three verses of Romans chapter 3, Paul, I'm paraphrasing, so just allow me, Paul mentions that, um, do we nullify the law through faith? God forbid, we establish the law. Um, and he says uh, earlier in, chapter, in uh, Romans chapter 2 that it's not the hearers of the law who are justified, but it's the doers of the law. If I were to jump out of Paul for a moment, jump into James, we find James telling us that um, without faith, without works, faith is dead. And so we end up with this, we end up with a, a, a measured amount of confusion if we take the prevailing Christian view that A, works of law means uh, works of obedience done in order to save, and then B, once we become saved, we're no longer under the law, meaning we're no longer under obedience to law. We are under grace. And therefore, conclusion is that Torah is done away with. Torah has been relaxed in Messiah. Also, I didn't bring out one more verse that would challenge us. If we, if we, hold, to the prince, if we hold to the prevailing uh, Christian view that the law is done away with, then what do we make of the Master's words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, where he says, I did not come to do away with the law. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You say, ah, Ariel, Jesus fulfilled them so that I don't have to do them. Okay, that is the prevailing Christian view. But if that is the correct interpretation of the Master's words in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, then what do we make of his remaining words in the, in the trailing verses where he says, I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill? And I'm paraphrasing, but whoever does them, and whoever does, whoever does the least of these and teaches others to do them will be called great in the kingdom. But whoever, uh, um, whoever uh, doesn't do them and, and teaches others not to do them will be called least in the kingdom. What do we make of the master's words? <laughs> right? If his fulfillment means that we don't have to do them, then why would he say that we're great in the kingdom if we do them and teach them, and that we're least in the kingdom if we don't do them and teach them? You see my point? So, what we need to do is we're challenged with having to rethink step A, step B, and the conclusion that I've described by the prevailing Christian view. And that's where our study on circumcision is going to kind of reboot our understanding. We're going to have to kind of go back to the beginning, go back to, um, uh, go back to the book of Genesis, in my opinion, as we start pouring through the book of Galatians and we encounter this notion of circumcision, and we encounter the verse that I read in, in my liturgy where Paul says, I, Paul, tell you that if you become circumcised, Christ is of none effect. We have to ask ourselves, is Paul trying to say that if a Jewish person becomes circumcised, or more accurately, if a Gentile who's not yet circumcised becomes circumcised once they are a believer, because that's who really Paul would be talking to, right? If a Christian person, if a Christian takes on circumcision, after they have received Christ, does that mean that their circumcision, that their obedience to a Torah command nullifies their belief in Jesus? In essence, what the heck does Galatians chapter 5 mean anyway? Now, we're going to get to that as we move on through our commentary, but bonus, for those of you who are listening to my commentary tonight, I'm going to do my best to exegete the Galatians 5 passage that I used in my, um, in my uh, liturgy. Uh, in other words, we're going to get a sneak peek at the Galatians 5 passage because it bears relevance to our study on circumcision. So let's move through my commentary because I only have about a paragraph or two left in this section number one called Brit Milah. And then next week, we'll pick up our study with section two. Okay. So if you're looking at the screen, allow me to scroll the... Um, allow me to scroll down. And let's go down where we left off. Uh, let's see. 
I believe we left off on page 12 if you're looking at the written commentary or if you're in the class tonight and you're looking at the screen. You'll see I've stopped at page 12 at the top of the page. We stopped where we ended up where it says um, Abraham. Abraham was credited with being righteous because he believed the unbelievable. Let's pick up now uh, and just read those last two paragraphs and then I will exegete um, Galatians chapter 5 in relevance to uh, the study on circumcision, okay? With this foundational Genesis teaching in our arsenal, we're now poised to turn our attention directly to Paul's continuing application of circumcision in the life of a first century covenant member, be he Jewish or Gentile. Paul does not indicate in Galatians that circumcision was being relaxed now that the prophesied Messiah has come and gone. What Paul does teach is that circumcision must be properly understood and applied on a community level if each Torah true covenant member was to remain in right standing with God. Put another way, to misunderstand the meaning of circumcision as a first century Jew or Gentile was to risk falling from grace, a warning Paul will reiterate directly in chapter 5 of his letter to this community. We know as 21st century Bible students, studying the scriptures, that circumcision was given by God to Avraham as an important covenant sign for him and the generations to come after him. But have you ever asked, have you ever stopped to ask the obvious $64,000 question? Why did God ask Avraham to cut away that particular part of his body? Since I believe it bears relevance for our correct understanding of Paul and his book of Galatians, it is to this topic that we will turn our attention next in this study. Okay, end. Now, I'm not going to move into the study on why that particular body part. I'll just leave that as a cliffhanger for you. Now, of course, you're encouraged and you're um, able, if you, if you dare, to go into my um, commentary that you can find on the web at, at tatesaytor.com or graftedin.com, my congregational website. You can click on the Galatians commentary, the PDF version or the web version, and you can go and read ahead for yourself. I encourage you to do that if you want to, so you don't have to wait wait till next week. But if you if you allow me, we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about that tonight. Instead, I want to focus on Galatians chapter five and exegete what we've been talking about as far as circumcision. I want to exegete that into or um, exegete that out of the Galatians passage. Uh, so. If you have your Bibles, I don't have this in the uh, screen right now. I don't have a way of showing you um, the passage since I didn't have, copy it and upload it to the WizIQ uh, classroom. And it'll take a little bit of time to do so. So um, if you'll allow me, I'm just going to jump over to Galatians chapter 5 uh, out of the ESV like we were talking about earlier. And um, actually, I can, I can still use the interlinear. And we'll talk about this passage. Uh, so what we learned is that Paul is warning the Galatian members, the Galatian congregations, the Galatian the, those those members in Galatia who were encountering Jesus the Messiah through the teachings of the apostles, through the um, uh, the truths that were being pushed forward, carry along throughout the um, first century, and we know that the Jewish people from times past, from times earlier were the um, caretakers of the Torah, were the caretakers of the scriptures. So a Gentile person in Paul's day who wanted to encounter the God of Israel naturally had to interact with the Jewish people. It was an inevitability. There's no way to get around it because the gospel was given to the Jewish people first. Paul tells us that in the book of Romans, right? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he also tells us later on in Romans that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So we know that Gentiles were going to have to interact with Jewish communities. Particularly, as we read through the book of Acts, we find that the Gentiles were flocking to the synagogues. And that's, of course, the natural place to encounter the Torah of Moshe and to encounter the gospel that's going to be preached by the Messianic Jews who were also going to be in attendance at the synagogues, right? This is no different than unsaved peoples who would be coming to, say, churches today to encounter the Bible, right? Um, unbelievers will visit churches, and what are they going to hear? They're going to hear the preacher 
They're going to hear the pastor preach the gospel from the pulpit. At least I hope they're going to hear him preach the gospel. And in doing so, they're going to interact with what? With other Christians, right? So we have this social interaction taking place, important social interaction. However, by Paul's day, as I already mentioned, history shows that the Jewish people had grossly misinterpreted the sign of circumcision not as a sign of the covenant given to Abraham to mark him out as a covenant member, but instead the Jewish people had misinterpreted circumcision as a sign that marked one out as a Jewish person. And so you're probably thinking, well, what about the women? Because they didn't receive physical circumcision. Aha! Instead, the term circumcision became the social marker. It became the badge. It became the boundary marker. It became the um, your your uh, social status. And basically, it gave you a social status as, as a Jewish person. Whether you were male or female, it didn't matter. In essence, if you were a male and you were circumcised by your parents when you were eight days old, essentially you were Jewish by birth. And you were a covenant member because you were Jewish. And then the Torah became your inheritance because of your covenant membership. So it was kind of a package deal, kind of like membership into a church. Once you became a member of the group, then the membership package and the bylaws and the protection that's afforded to members only became yours exclusively. And it became yours to maintain your covenant membership. So essentially in the first century, the Jewish people felt, and this was this is wrong, by the way, I'm describing their their legalistic view of their membership, their legalistic view of their identity. Um, the Jewish people of Paul's day, excuse me, <coughs> the Jewish people of Paul's day didn't really think that they should keep Torah to become saved, like the Christian worldview teaches, like the Christian, like the prevailing Christian view teaches. Instead, the Jewish people believed that they were saved, if I could use air quotes with my fingers, they believed that they were saved because they were Jewish. They believed they were saved because they were members of Israel. They believed they were saved because they belonged to the faction known as the circumcision. They believed they were saved because they were the uh, possessors of the Torah, because the Torah was their social status. It gave them a social status known as saved people. Are you following me? So their interaction with Torah was not done in order to supposedly save them, like the Christian church teaches, like Luther teaches, like the prevailing um, Pauline views on uh, the book of Galatians are in, in your average Christian bookstore. That's really not quite the most accurate way to interact with Paul. <clears throat> Instead, what we find as we study the rabbinic writings a bit more closely and corroborate the, the worldview that we gain from reading the rabbinic writings, along with um, our study of the Qumran texts, along with our study of the early patristic writings, along with our um, study of the Bible and the Torah proper. So we kind of pile all of these studies together, and the worldview we come with, come come away with, is that the Jewish people essentially believe that their Jewish identity is what gained membership into Israel. So we have this phrase. All Israel and only Israel shares a place in the world to come. And that phrase shows up in the rabbinic writings. Uh, I believe it's in um, the Mishnah, Sanhedrin 10.1. That's a rabbinic writing that you can you can Google search it if you want. Sanhedrin 10.1. S-A-N-H-E-D-R-I-N 10 colon 1. Kind of like a Bible verse, right? It's a section out of the Mishnah, which is a rabbinic writing, part of the Talmud. And essentially it says all Israel shares a place in the world to come. And it's based on a passage out of Isaiah and in Isaiah, Isaiah describes that all Israel, uh, all your people are righteous. Kulam uh, in the Hebrew, and all your people are righteous or shall be righteous. And the leaders of Israel interpreted this phrase, all your people shall be righteous, as the reason they're righteous or the reason they have the status of righteousness conferred to them is because they are Jewish. So, as we look at the Galatians 5 passage that I read in my liturgy, and we start interacting with Paul's writings, then um, I'm looking at my interlinear version here, the, uh, the, the, the one I read in my, uh, um, in my liturgy this evening. And we have Paul saying, in freedom, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and be not again yoked to... Uh, be, not, be, be not again entangled in a yoke of slavery. And... 
Uh, then he goes into verse 2 and he says, Behold, I, Paul, tell you that if you become circumcised, Christ shall be of no effect. Right? I'm not reading any particular translation in case you're trying to follow along in your Bible. I'm just I'm paraphrasing back from the uh, interlinear Greek that I have. It's my own paraphrase, so it's, it's not exactly any particular translation. But Paul basically says in verse 2 that I, I tell you that if you become circumcised, Christ is none of no effect. It will profit you nothing. Christos hemas uden ophelese is it will profit you nothing. In essence, Paul is saying that he's setting up a dichotomy between circumcision and the merit of Christ. Now, how can this be if Paul is a Torah true teacher? If he's a if he's a genuine Torah teacher, how can he be saying that that circumcision undoes the work of Christ? How is it possible? Now you say, well, it's possible if you're trusting in circumcision for your salvation. Ah, that's correct. That hermeneutic principle is accurate. If we believe that the first century Jews were believing that circumcision would save them, then Paul is going to come along and say, no, 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 circumcision does not save you. I, Paul, tell you that if you trust in circumcision, then Christ's sacrifice is worthless. And that is accurate, meaning it's an accurate way to interpret the scriptures. However, I want to build on that because Christian theology teaches that accurately. The Christian church teaches that Paul is saying that if you think that Torah obedience will save you, then you're wrong, and that only faith in Christ will save you. And Christian theology teaches that. And I'm not saying that that's incorrect theology. Please don't misunderstand me. If you have questions about that, write to me. Um, send me an email and, and say, Ariel, I, I, I think you're misunderstanding what Paul's teaching. All right? Because I, 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 I assure you, I'm, I don't think I'm misunderstanding what Paul's trying to teach. I know that Paul would be opposed to any sort of meritorious use of Torah for the purpose of salvation. In other words, Paul opposes merit theology. In other words, I affirm, a thousand times I affirm, amen, a thousand times amen, I would say. Paul would affirm, Paul would agree that good works does not save you. Good works will not save you. There's no amount of good work that you can do that will credit your account as righteousness, to use the biblical phrase. You cannot be saved by good works, and therefore you cannot be saved by keeping the Torah, and you cannot be saved by becoming circumcised. However, the challenge I'm making to my pastor friends, to my Christian friends who study the Bible, to those who are very familiar with Luther's view of Galatians, here's the challenge I have for you. I don't think Paul is warning the Galatians away from circumcision or away from Torah observance for the ostensible sake of salvation, because that's not the way they would have interacted with Torah as Jews and Gentiles. Instead, I believe that works of the law and circumcision, in this passage in particular, are technical terms for something else. So let me just reinterpret. Let me interpret what I think Paul's saying. In verse 2, when he says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Here's what I, here's what I mean. I, here's what I believe Paul's saying. I believe he is using circumcision here in the sociological meaning. In other words, Paul's really talking about Jewish identity. He's not particularly singling out the physical act of circumcision per se. In other words, I think Paul is saying, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you think that your Jewish identity will save you, well, then Christ, uh, Christ will be worth nothing to you. Christ profits you nothing. In other words, the dichotomy that Paul saw was the Jewish identity versus uh, the sacrifice of Messiah. That is the dichotomy that Paul is challenging, that are setting up. It is Jewish identity versus faith in, in Messiah. And in that uh, picture, then Paul is going to come down in favor of faith in Christ. That's what saves you. In other words... There's nothing wrong with Jewish identity, as long as you don't think it saves you. And that, unfortunately, is the position that the Jewish people in Paul's day were clinging to. We are saved, viz, we are made righteous, by our, by our position in Israel as ethnic Jews. In other words, our ethnic identity, the marker that we gained at birth if we are male, or the marker that you gain, the identity that you gain if you marry into Jewishness, uh, if you're a woman, or for the Gentile who didn't have the benefit of being born Jewish or perhaps was not married to a Jew, the Gentile 
had to convert, in other words, they had to go through the man-made ritual of the proselyte, if that, in Paul's view, if that was your hope of salvation, then I, Paul, tell you that Christ is worthless to you because you're putting your faith in your ethnicity. You're putting your faith in a work. You're putting your faith in a social badge, in a social marker, in a boundary, in, in, a, um, in a, uh, um, a social boundary, in a membership that is only going to get you so far. Paul has no problem with Torah observance, either for Jews or non-Jews. Paul has no problem with circumcision. Paul has no problem with um, Paul has no problem with Gentiles keeping Torah. These are bold statements that I'm making, and I can back them up later on. I just don't have time now because we're drawing the uh, study to a close as we near the top of the hour, and I'm moving into our Q and A time. Basically, in conclusion to tonight's teaching. The point I'm trying to make in our section on circumcision, in this section one, Brit Milah, is that the first century Jews had wielded circumcision. They had kind of repackaged it, redefined it, and it had moved away from its mere um, physical definition of, sur- of, the, of, the, of, the, um, of the physical uh, surgical act of removing the foreskin. It had kind of morphed, as it were, it, or you could say it had taken on the extra meaning of defining a people group. And in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with defining a people group or, or uh, setting, a, setting a mar- marking out a, pr- a people group by this particular covenantal sign. The problem was when the Jewish people took the, the social marker of circumcision, the, the ethnic marker, the social identity that they had attributed to circumcision. The problem to Paul was when they took this, this social identity and, and presented it before God as if God would accept that social identity in exchange for salvation. You see my point? That's where Paul's going to get his most mileage from his discussion of circumcision. And to be sure, when we start talking about Galatians chapter 3, and when and how Abraham was justified and became a righteous person, became a tzaddik, became saved, if you were to use Christian parlance, we're going to have to remind ourselves of was Abraham circumcised when he became saved, or was he uncircumcised? And based on our answer which many Christians know the answer, but perhaps don't articulate the, um, um, the implications behind their answer. Based on your answer of whether he was uncircumcised or circumcised when he got saved, it will propel you in to a better understanding of the book of Galatians from Paul's worldview. So that's essentially where we're going to go in, in my study. And I hope you'll stick with me through the long haul. So in closing... Um, what I want to remind you is that uh, circumcision in Paul's day should have been seen and viewed and understood the way Moses described it in Genesis chapter 17. And what was that? We read it in my liturgy. It is a sign of a covenant. It is a sign that the that Abraham was was, was taking upon himself as an existing covenant member. Remember, God called Abraham out way back in Genesis chapter 12 and began to cut a covenant with him. And particularly in Genesis chapter 15, if we were to move through the narrative chronologically, in Genesis 15, Abraham was taken outside and shown the stars, and God, in the person of the word of the Lord, revealed himself to Abraham. And it was at that moment that the zenith, as you were, of Abraham's faith was was brought to the forefront using the narrative that Moses describes for us in Genesis 15. And Abraham, an existing covenant member from Genesis 15, remember, remind yourself that Abraham was an existing covenant member in Genesis 15. It was then that Moshe pins the famous words, and he believed in the Lord, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. It was credited to his account as righteousness. Abraham was recognized by God in Genesis 15 as an existing covenant member, and God saw into his heart as Abraham cast his 
faith specifically on the word of the Lord. And in this encounter, in Genesis 15, God declared Abraham righteous. And then we move into the Genesis 17 passage where God tells Abraham, an existing righteous covenant member, Abraham, here is circumcision. So, as one of my students is reminding me right now, circumcision is a matter of the heart. It has always been. Thank you. That's a quote from one of my own. That's a quote from my own commentary. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. <laughs> Smiley face. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. Circumcision is not something that someone takes upon himself for the ostensible sake of salvation, and circumcision is not something that turns you into a Jew. Okay? Those are the two challenges I want to leave with you tonight as we close the study. And we'll pick up the study again next week with the section section two entitled Ouch Factor, Why the Male Reproductive Organ. In other words, as we interact with Paul's writings, we're going to ask ourselves, if circumcision is a matter of the heart, then why did God have him cut himself there? Why couldn't God have, say, perhaps had Abraham nick his ear, or why not, say, nip off a tip of his finger, or why not, you know, remove a bit of flesh from the shoulder, or, you know, on the kneecap, or or just a bit off the big toe, you know, somewhere a bit less, how should we say, suspicious. You know what I'm saying? We're going to talk about that next week. So, let's close in prayer, and then I'll open the room up for chat, and for Q&A, for those of you who are in the live study, for those of you who are listening to this recording after the fact, the recording will end after I close in prayer, okay? Let's pray. Avinu Malkano, our Father, our King, Lord, I thank you for your wisdom and for your insight. Holy Spirit, I thank you for revealing the text to us. I thank you that you are the author of the text. And as we continue to press into the words of Paul through this um, book of Galatians, We must, we must rely on you, Holy Spirit, if we are ever to understand these words. We must remember that you are the one who superintended the writing of the letter, and that it is only through yielding to you that we will walk away with a better understanding of the text, and therefore walk away with an application of the text. Father, we study in order to do, and then in order to teach. That's what Ezra taught us. That's the model that Ezra left for us. The Torah says that Ezra studied the Torah, not in order to teach it, but primarily in order to do it. And then once he learned how to do it, then he was in a position to teach it to others. So Lord, we want to model Ezra's uh, uh, actions there. We want to study the text in order to do the text, in order to teach others. And why do we want to do what the Torah says? Why do we want to do what your scriptures say? Why do we want to follow the word? Lord, because we want to be pleasing to you. What did the psalmist say? Thy word have I hid my heart that I might not sin against thee. Lord, help us to press in. Help us to be reliant upon Yeshua. Help us during these seasons, Lord, not to forget that, that to borrow a popular Christian phrase, Jesus is the reason for the season. Meaning, if this is the season of light, if this is a season where we focus on the birth of Yeshua, Lord, let us focus on the Son. Let us focus on Him. Let us not lose sight of the Son. Let us not become uh, separated from the vine. Let us not um, lose uh, sight of our first love. Lord, keep our love burning bright. Keep keep our love burning strong. Thank you, Lord, as we um, continue to press in and to, to interact with one another. Give us boldness in our witness. Help us to be um, um, gracious and forgiving as we uh, witness to those around us. Lord, this is a time when uh, friends and family members get together a lot, when, when there's going to be a lot of family reunions going on during this time of year. And we ask that there will be opportunities, uh, divine appointments, as it were, to share the good news with our friends and family members who don't know, share the, the gospel with our siblings, um, to be bold in our witness, to, to be uh, passionate about our love for Messiah. Lord, give us opportunity. Continue to forgive us where we fail you. Thank you for each and every student who showed up tonight. I pray that you'll bless everyone um, and you'll bring us back together uh, for our meeting next week. For it's in your son's name, Yeshua, that we pray all these things. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. 
That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.